when uh, in the 915, it, it dawned on me, and I'll share it with you as well. It dawned on me, I was looking at, at the band, and I was just kind of blown away because uh, the band today, five-piece band, three of the people who are up here were a product of our kids' ministry or our student ministry. And to me, that was just so refreshing to know that, that we are a church that's becoming a, a multi-generational church, that we're inspiring our, our students and our kids to go out and to serve. And one of the responsibilities of a believer is to serve in the church. So I was just really blown away and, and you know, of all that I was just seeing and experiencing and thinking, man, they're leading us. And what that says about you, what that says about you difference makers, those who serve in the student ministry or the kids ministry, from my heart to yours, I want you to know you're a difference maker. And I clap my hand for you. I thank you for what you do. I thank you for all the volunteer hours and the tears and the, the meetings and all the time that you have, that you have lobbied up just to see if God could use it. And I want you to know, in times like these, it becomes so clear that God is indeed using your service for His glory and to expand uh, the kingdom through all of the generations. So I, think, I think that's just an incredible, incredible thing to see um, and to be a part of. Well, on to the sermon. Uh, today, we're in week two of our series called Miracles. And what we've talked about uh, in the first week, and I introduced this idea last week, is we're looking at, at what Jesus did so it reminds us of what Jesus still does. So we're looking at what Jesus did, past tense, to remind us of what Jesus still does, present and future tense. Uh, I believe that one of the things that we have done as a church, locally, us as a church, not, I'm not talking about any other church but ours, I think that there's been a dip in our faith, maybe it's because we've been too busy. Maybe it's just, just an increase of, of church activity. Maybe, maybe some of it's my responsibility. I don't know. But I believe what we've seen is a dip in faith. And I think what we've done is we've replaced it with, with some, uh, some intellectual knowledge. We have, we have just seen a little dip in our faith, and it isn't that we wanted to or, or we like it, but I believe that that's kind of dipped, and now we've just kind of settled for some things that we know, some facts, maybe some doctrine. Maybe we come to some Bible studies, and we can kind of string the Bible together and be like, yes, this makes sense, and yet we can do all of that and not have faith, not have the faith that causes us to ask God for miracles. We can have that faith that then it just really becomes settled on what we know and what we can do and not on who Jesus is. So we've been in this, uh, just the thematic journey over the last couple months to dig into faith so that we can be inspired to remember indeed what Jesus did and then what Jesus still does. So that's the reason why we're here and why we have the last series and this series is to remind us that, that we need to not just uh, operate in the intellectual planes. There's nothing wrong with knowing facts and doctrine and truth, nothing wrong with that, but yet we, we have to have faith and, and if we have just facts without faith, we're going to be missing something. So um, this time of year, for me, actually it started about a month ago for me, but this time of year is, uh, is, is the time of year where I have to start cleaning the pool. That's one of the tasks that I, that I do. I'm the type of guy who doesn't really like to clean my pool. Once it's up and running, I love to just dump some chemicals, let the pool run, and let it be done, and I don't have to think about it until I get in. But not so the case when we start the pool up, because when we start the pool up, it is the darkest, deepest shade of green you've ever seen in your life. 
Um, it, is, it is nasty. There's algae. And part of it's my responsibility, too, because at the end of the pool season, I shut the pump off, and I want to ignore it for months. I'm over it. I'm done pumping money and chemicals into it. I'm just, I'm over it. So the pool just kind of takes a life of its own, and then it brings life into it uh, in, in the way of critters. So you turn the pump on, uh, and you start the pool up. You dump a bunch of chemicals in there. It's green, and it's incredibly gross. And it's this time of year where I always have to have experiences like I've had uh, less than a month ago. And this is the experience. Just the way you know a pool operates. You turn the pumps on, the water goes in through the pump, but then it goes through the, what they call skimmers and then back into the pump. That's kind of that's the bare bones of it. That's how it works, right? So you, you turn the pump on, water goes out, uh, out of the jets, in through the skimmers, and, but then all of the stuff that accumulates in the pool, all the nasty, all the green, all the moss, all the things, they also go into the skimmer. So it's like, uh, it's, it's like a little treasure hunt every time that I go into the skimmers to clean the pool because I, I just never know what I'm going to get. So I always look at it, and, and literally the skimmer's only about that deep of water, but it's so dark you cannot even see the bottom of that. It's that, it's that gross. So I, I always get into this predicament where the pool has to be turned on, and, and I see that there's just stuff there but yet I can't see the bottom. And I have this, this mind that remembers all of the things that I've pulled out of the pool in years past, uh, such as dead mice and dead snakes and dead frogs that don't really look like frogs, but they're frogs, I'm pretty sure of it, and uh, they're just disgusting. They're as bad, worse, actually, than what I'm even saying. I'm trying to spare you details. So I always get this surprise, but I always get to this point because I know I have to empty the skimmer, and to empty the skimmer, I literally have to, to ask myself, well, how bad do you want it? Like, how bad do you really want this pool to be, to be clean? Can we just go a year with it being green? I mean, can we just let it go? Like, how bad do you want it? So I always have to get to this point where I just have to, be, uh, have to just face my fear and reach my hand all the way into it, not knowing what I'm going to find. And, and I get some surprises every now and then. And I always have to put my hand into it. I pull out the skimmer and whatever's there to clean it out, and I have to do this over and over and over. I know, some of you can't even relate, and you think in your mind, this is exactly why I don't have a pool, right? That's what you're thinking. But you, you have probably done something, or you will do something that's actually very similar. You've been in a situation, say, in the bathroom, and say the toilet lid was up, and say you had something in your hand and you were a little clumsy, or say that maybe you're right next to the counter doing whatever you are doing, and yet the toilet lid is up, and then you just have this awkward moment of whoops, and then you hear boop, and, and then you look over, and you're asking yourself the same question. Do I really want it? Like, do I really want it? Like, it doesn't matter if it's clean or not, because either way you're asking that question. And either way, if you're like me, you're standing over it, and you're scratching your head, you're like, I can just pretend that it's not here. Like it just, or, or I can just reason with it and be like, that's not going to hurt the septic system or the sewer system. It'll be fine. I think that brush is going to flush through there just fine. Like we play these mind games, but we have to ask ourselves the question, how bad do we want it? Because we're put in a situation where we literally have to put our hand in it to get it out if we decide that we actually want it. Kind of gross, right? But we'll be there, or you have been there. What I really find interesting is, is I hear stories about people dropping their phones in the, in the toilet, and, and which is really great and really gross. And I just want you to know 
that I, I think it's kind of funny, but if that ever happens to me, you will never know. I just want you to know that. Never. Never going to let you know that. But we all have these moments where, where we ask ourselves, or we need to ask ourselves the question, how bad do we want it? I believe in our life, we have so many instances where it comes to the matters of the faith, and we say, well, how bad do you want it? I believe we're presented with opportunities, maybe obstacles in our life that we, we ourselves can't surmount, and we have to say, how bad do I want it? I believe we get into, into challenges in our marriage to where we have to answer that question in the right way to actually get the help that we need. How bad do we want it? We can either ignore this issue, the marriage is an issue, our finances are an issue, our kids are an issue, our boss is an issue, our loneliness is an issue, our addictions are an issue, but we have to ask ourselves the question, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want the help? We're presented with this all the time. And I believe that there's so much of this that goes on, and I'm thankful as your pastor that I actually don't know what you're thinking, because that would be really weird and challenging for me on a whole other bunch of levels. But I believe this is something that you deal with on a regular basis. Maybe you don't put those words to it, but you ask yourself the question, or perhaps you're reminded of the question, how bad do you want it? Do you really want the change that the gospel offers? Do you really want it? Are you willing to risk, risk some things to have it? How bad do you want it? Are you just going to play by the religious rules and just attend church and community group and Bible study every once in a while and kind of come in and attend and fly under the radar? Or are you going to grow in your faith? Are you going to allow Jesus to take your faith to the next level? How bad do you want it? Good question, isn't it? I believe this, this question is being answered in our passage today. We're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. And what we're going to see is two different people who go from death to life. And we're going to see it in two different ways, in two different people. And God shows up in incredible ways. But one of these, this, this woman in the story, there's, there's really a child and then there's a woman. The woman in the story, she, she has to have made up in her mind, how bad do you want it? Because she crosses some incredible obstacles to receive the healing that Jesus had on offer. She had to cross obstacles that had to do with religion and the social sphere, all sorts of things. She had to cross those obstacles to get the help that Jesus had on offer. And it's an amazing thing that, that we're going to see together. Now, because this passage that we're going to go through is lengthy, we are, we're just going to take just segments of it. We're not going to do what we typically do where I read the whole thing. Um, we're just going to take it in chunks, and I'll just give you the, the pause markers Along the way. So, this is what it says in Mark 5 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat on the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So Jesus, uh, typical of Jesus' ministry, everywhere that Jesus seemed to go, except when he would pull away to be with the Father intentionally, everywhere that Jesus seemed to go, people seemed to be interested in his message. But they were also interested in, in his methods, because he would not only have just the, the, his ministry was, it was his methods, and he would do healings, signs, and wonders. He would also, uh, he would be able to speak and articulate things in ways that they had not seen before. So his message was profound, and, and his way of doing ministry was profound, and his methods were profound. 
So now the, this crowd is around Jesus, typical, and yet there's this individual named Jairus who comes to Jesus on behalf of whom? His daughter. His daughter is in a bad, in a bad place. He knows that she's in a bad place. He knows uh, that Jairus knows that, that his daughter's death may be imminent. So he is, he is now pressing in through the crowd to try and get to Jesus so he can have this interaction to get the healing that his daughter needs. Something I can connect with as a father, and certainly if you're a mother, um, maybe if you even have grandkids now, and, and you're, maybe you're, you're raising them, or even niece or nephew that are really close with, you can just feel this. Uh, and then you can put yourself in Jairus' situation so desperate that he is willing to, to go out and go to Jesus. Now, one of the things that, uh, that we have to understand, really, about this to really deepen the point of what's happening with Jairus, it says that he is a synagogue ruler. Now, this is uh, not a professional ministry position, but this is a, a lay, like a volunteer position, but he's somebody who would put together the articles of worship for those who were going to be teaching. He wouldn't himself be the rabbi or nothing like that, but he had an important position as a synagogue ruler, so he, was, he had authority. He would put together the articles. People looked to him. They respected him. And notice, if you will, now he is le- he's not only pressing into the crowd to get to Jesus, he's also leaving his religion behind. Because the Jewish religion at this time wasn't pointing to Jesus. The Orthodox Jews now don't point to Jesus. Only the Messianic Jews actually point to Jesus. So now he... he goes beyond and he he leaves a lot of obstacles, if you will, that he had in his past because he knows that the only way that she's going to be healed is not by that religion, but by faith. So now he goes out to interact with Jesus on his daughter's behalf, something, again, I can connect with, um, and, and maybe you can too from just being a parent, grandparent, or a caregiver. I've believe we see these things in Jairus' life, and uh, so I'll, I'll summarize it by saying this. A person who is thirsty for the things of God will be able to do certain things. A person who is thirsty for the things of God will be able to put his or her reputation at risk. Jairus absolutely put his reputation at risk. After all, he had some, some responsibility and authority in the synagogue as being a synagogue ruler, putting together the articles of worship. People would look up to him. Not just anybody got to do that. So now he's, he's putting his reputation at risk by going forth to see Jesus. Knowing, of course, he had to have counted the cost. It doesn't say this in this passage, but he had to have. He had to have counted the cost. Like, this position of respect and authority could be at risk if this goes sideways, but Jesus is my only hope for this miracle for my daughter. So not only does this, he put his reputation at risk, we also have to do so. For us to lean into Jesus, I believe one of the reasons why, again, my perspective, we can agree to disagree, but I believe one of the reasons why we don't see miracles in our day is because we're afraid the way we're going to look to other people. We, we don't want to be known. We don't want to pray boldly. We don't want to pray confidently. We, want, we don't want to pray consistently because we're afraid of that may look, make us look like the crazy Jesus people. And yet we want to look like the comfortable Jesus people whose faith is, is resigned to a Sunday morning experience or maybe a sporadic uh, just spiritual experience during the week. But yet we don't want to be those type of people who Jesus could really count upon. 
People who are willing to put their reputation at risk to lean into the promises of God and to lean into the power of God. So instead, what we tend to do, if we are, if we are not willing to, to cross that and to lean into Jesus, we're actually resting on ourself. And we're saying, Jesus, I don't really need you in all these compartments of my life, but I'm really glad I have you on Sunday. And this also puts us in a situation where we're not going to be continually fed by the Word of God. Instead, we're going to have a limp-along type of walk with Jesus to where it's going to be Sunday morning, and then Sunday to Sunday, you're going to fill that balloon up, and then you're going to run out of air, and then you're going to come in Sunday, and you're going to expect me or somebody like me or, or maybe AJ or the band to fill you up again, also also you can get into the next Sunday and then Monday, not building into your own walk with God, maybe because you fear the activity of God, and then you go, and the air comes out, and that is not the abundant life that Jesus promises. That's not. His, the abundant life is promised to, to believers today so that we would walk in the Spirit of God. So our Sunday morning gatherings would be a time of celebration. Certainly of encouragement and challenge and community and all that. It's beautiful. But it's only supposed to supplement, be a part of your daily walk with Jesus. I believe the, a person who is thirsty for the things of God, they will not only be able to put his or her reputation at risk, they'll also deal with some pride issues. They'll also abandon pride. I was reminded of the prodigal son. Incredible story. You ought to read it. Luke 15. Just, just an amazing thing. And, and the prodigal son who had everything uh, promised to him, everything was great. He had some jealousy in his heart towards his brother and just bad relationship with his dad. And this is a parable. But then he, he leaves, and it says that he leaves and leaves and leaves, and he squanders everything that he has. Maybe you remember this. And he finds himself in the middle of some pig slop. Like some of your farmers, and you understand what this is. I don't even know how to relate right now. Well, like he finds himself in a literal pig slop. He's out of money. He's bankrupt. He has no hope. His life is a wreck. And he, he literally, it says in the passage that he comes to his senses. So he finds himself in that situation, not just physically, but spiritually, socially, and relationally. And it is in that moment that he comes to his senses where he realizes, oh my goodness, what have I done? And then he turns and he abandons pride. And then he comes back to the Father. And that parable plays out that as he's coming back, that the Father runs to the Son. And they have this embrace. It's incredible. You ought to read it. But to do so, he comes to his senses and he abandons pride. For us to experience the power of God in our life, we have to abandon pride too. Because I believe that pride is the number one obstacle. I believe that pride is the number one obstacle because we have been force-fed this lie for the last couple hundred years and really the foundation of our country that, that we are to be the rugged individualist, that you're not going to get anything unless you work really, really hard and everything is, you're responsible for everything. And yet that builds up our pride. And while that may look good in a voting booth, that doesn't look good when it comes to your walk with God because we wouldn't be trusting in the power of God so he, to be able to put his or her reputation at risk, abandoning pride. And the last one is this. The last one is removing his prejudices. Again, his, his volunteer work as, as a lay person, as the synagogue ruler to put the articles of the worship together, 
Jesus did some ministry in these areas, but also now if you notice at the beginning of verse 21, let's just go back to it. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by the boat on the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. When Jesus would minister, the the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually the religious leaders, perhaps people like Jairus as synagogue rulers, would take notice of what was going on. Whoa, our crowds are getting a little smaller, but his crowds are really, really big. That could create some prejudice in someone's heart. We don't even see this in Jairus whatsoever. He, he realizes that I'm in such a need that I believe he's, he's come to his senses, that he has had to have already abandoned pride, and he's already had to put his reputation at risk, and now he, he has no prejudices, and now he's just trusting in Jesus. I want us to be these type of people where we can put all these things aside and walk in the newness of the abundant life. There's two questions to apply this little portion of my talk. First question is this, how many times does pride get in the way of us asking God for a miracle? Not a question to be uh, answered fully today, but I believe it's a, it's a question maybe we need to journal, put in our phones, little, little post-it notes on our mirrors, uh, in our cars, or in our bathrooms. Don't bring your phone in there. Whatever the case may be for you, it's like I think we need to have a reminder of this because I think this is the thing that seeps into our faith experience. How many times does pride get in the way of asking God for a miracle? How many times does, does, does pride get in the way of asking God or, or praying with anticipation that God could do something miraculous in our life? And maybe the, the, the miraculous thing that Jesus would do in your life, in my life, is not bringing a dead person back to life. I believe that he does still do this and he can still do this, but perhaps it isn't that. Maybe it's, it's for you and I to get to the place where we can truly change. Because I think there's, there's a touch of the miraculous every time the Holy Spirit does an incredible work in somebody's life and it's unexplainable and God does something and it reveals something needs to change and he allows us to submit and repent and get back in. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing that happens over and over and over. Second question is this. Second question is how many times does our, our reputation become a hindrance to healing? How many times does our reputation become a hindrance to healing? How many times is it we need some healing in our finances? We need some healing in, in our parenting. We need some healing in our marriage. We need some healing in our relationships. We need some just some, some relational healing. How many times has that become Uh, Does does our reputation become a hindrance to where we say, I know I could go ask this person and they would be able to give me wise counsel. I know if I would just humble myself and go ask them, I know my life would be better. But how many times does our reputation of not wanting to be those crazy Jesus people become a hindrance to our own healing? And we'll never know, but I just I wonder if if there isn't just a just a healing that Jesus is waiting to give to people if they would humble themselves, put their reputation to the side, and simply ask. And simply ask. Jesus helps, and Jesus heals, and the Holy Spirit does this as well. I believe that, that Jesus, he, he loves to help people. And one of the ways that I know this is after a person gives their life to Jesus, they, they also, the Word of God says that they have the Holy Spirit residing within them. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. 
It is our helper. When we don't know the right things to say, it, it speaks on our behalf. When we don't know the right things to think, it, it, it gives us the truth of God's word of knowing what to think. When we don't even know what to pray, like I talked about last week, when we don't even know what it is, what we should pray, the Holy Spirit offers up these, these words, these groanings, not even intelligible words, to the Father on our behalf, even when we can't even articulate those words ourselves. In John 16, 7, it says that the Holy Spirit is our help in time of need. He's our help. He's, he's a, a deposit. He's part of our inheritance as people of faith for this life. An inheritance that's been given to the Christian. Not only do we have an identity, and it says that we are blessed and that we are redeemed and, and that we have hope and that we are adopted and that we have been predestined to be children of God and we are indeed children of God. Not only are all of these things true, but also He is our help in time of need. A daily provision for us. It says this in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Wow, think about how incredible this is. So the Holy Spirit works, He worked back then and He works now reminding us of what Jesus has already done and said about us. Just continually being our help, continually uh, just bringing to mind what it is that Jesus has said to us and about us. And it says this in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured out into the hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. Just an expression of God's love is, is the Holy Spirit of God and our help in time of need. Now let's go back to our passage in verse 25, reading through verse 29. It says here, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, such a great word. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Immediately, this happened. So now Jesus is on his way. He's doing ministry. He's got a crowd of people around him. Jairus comes up on behalf of his daughter. And now Jesus is, is doing this ministry. And he changes direction to go do some ministry at Jairus' house, house to minister to Jairus' daughter. And now in the midst of that journey, now this, this woman who had the issue of bleeding for 12 years, and I believe that she was not only hemorrhaging blood, she was also hemorrhaging hope for 12 years. So now, she, she is in, in such a desperate place, overcoming all sorts of obstacles, which we're going to see in a minute. Now she goes out, and she has enough faith to believe, if I just touch Jesus' robe, she had that much faith. If I just touch His robe, then I could be healed. That if I could just, I, I don't need a face-to-face, -face, I just need a touch, that I could be healed. She had been in the situation, it says, for 12 years. 12 years. 
Certainly she had gone from anticipation to anguish. We know that she started out with a certain amount of money. We also know uh, from what we just read in, uh, in verse 26, it says that she had been under, the, uh, under a great deal, excuse me, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she got worse. She had gone into it with a certain amount of wealth, and now that money's gone. Certainly, it said that she had seen many doctors, probably some specialists. I'm sure it would be similar to us when you have a diagnosis or something you're struggling with, and you go to one doctor, and the doctor says, I can't do anything for you. I'll refer you to the specialist. That specialist says, I can't do anything for you. Maybe you ought to go see them. After a while, you too would run out of money like she did, and you too would probably run out of hope like I believe she did. So she goes from hurting to helpless to hopeless. What started early on the 12-year journey, I mean, for sure, she thought, well, I'll just go to the doctor and this could be remedied. So then it was a hurting situation and then just growing to be helpless and then essentially that she would turn out to be hopeless. There's several obstacles for us to really understand and carry some of the weight of what's happening here. I want to explain to you some of the obstacles that she overcame just to simply be in this situation to touch Jesus' robe. The first one was just the physical obstacle. Just the the daily difficulty, the awkwardness, the inconvenience of, of hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. Like what that would do to, to a lady's uh, emotional state and mental state, I, I can't even fathom. But there was a physical obstacle every day, every day, every moment of every day. But that isn't the only obstacle. Another obstacle is a financial obstacle. Again, it said that she had, she had basically lost all of her money. She had gone to see all these, these doctors, and no doctor could give help, no doctor could give help. So now not only... Is, is she in need of a miracle, and she not only is dealing with the issue of bleeding, she also is broke. She, now she's financially busted. She has, she has nothing. I think money for us still is a great indicator of our faith. I believe that if we would really evaluate our money, not only would we see what we really value as people and where we, how we spend our money, what we spend it on and how fast we spend it, I think that would be an indicator of faith. But also when it comes to the issues of leaning in and trusting God to do uh, a miracle or trusting God to do some healing of some way, I believe that many times what we can do because of where we live in America, not true around the world, but certainly of America, we first, instead of going to God and praying and asking for a miracle, what we do is we go to our bank account to say, can I afford this copay? Or can I afford to go to the ER? Or can I afford to go to this counselor? Can I go see this therapist? And, and those things, I, I'm an advocate. Go see the, the counselor, the therapist, the ER, pay that copay, get medical insurance. That's not my perspective. But I think a lot of times what we do is we go to the doctor to be Jesus for us. So we don't pray and ask for a miracle. All we do is we just hope there's enough money in the bank to cover our ailment. And I advocate for both. I advocate for both, but I wonder if the reason why we don't see more miracles in the United States of America is because we have more money than anyone else in the world and because we have health care. 
Because when I hear stories about what happens in third world countries, people who don't have access to health care, whether it's socialized or, or individual or whatever, they just don't have it. What I see is they have a walk with God that's deeper than what typically what, what we see in America. And they have a dependence on God. And yet they also see more miracles than we do. So I believe that there's something there uh, of just noticing uh, what it is that we do with our money and it being a great indicator of our faith. Also, her issue was not only a physical obstacle, a financial obstacle, it was also a spiritual obstacle. Because for her, because of the issue of bleeding and because of the the Levitical law, she could not go into the place of worship while she was suffering with this. So she she would be excluded from the fellowship and the worship. So you talk about, I, I want to even connect with God, and, and, and their methodology of doing so was, was to go together in the synagogue and to learn and to sing and do those types of things. She now is excluded in that way. Think how lonely that had to have been for 12 years. She would have been like uh, the lepers in the first century, where a leper had to walk around and say, unclean, unclean. Because if she would have just gone barreling in and started touching people, Because of the Levitical law, they could have stoned her to death. So it was was an incredible spiritual obstacle. And every person, every person who would have touched her by accident, had she would have had to she would have had to tell them what her issue was. So think how humiliating that is. She would have had to tell them, so every person that she touched, that person they could go out and they could go get purified before they could go in and worship. But yet she couldn't because she could never be purified because her body continued to hemorrhage blood. So not only it wasn't just a, a, a personal thing, it was also a social obstacle. It was a social obstacle. She couldn't even be around people, touch people. And if she did, she'd have to tell him what the issue was. And again, think how humiliating that would be. And certainly it was an emotional obstacle because I believe she wasn't only hemorrhaging blood, she was also hemorrhaging hope. After 12 years, I think we probably all would. So she's hemorrhaging hope. It brought to mind just the, the reality that she couldn't touch anyone and yet she decided that she was going to risk her life in the crowd. And that's what it says. There's, there's a crowd. We're going to see this again in just a moment. There's a crowd. So she's willing to risk that to go out, to touch Jesus. So, so though she was untouchable, it was just her touch that gave her the healing. And yet, in with the emotional obstacle, there's so much uh, study has been done in the 20th and 21st century about the value of physical touch. And Many of you, if you've had children, even recently, you know this, or grandkids recently, you know that even after a child is born, they have the skin-to-skin contact with mothers. And because what they're finding is that physical touch, not only for babies, that, that, just that, that touch is so important that, that is such a need for children and for people, just the affectionate physical touch. So... When I, I, I dug into this, what I found was when people have not had effective touch as a child, they're more prone to be disconnected from their feelings. They're more prone to, to, to feel things but not be able to 
speak about what they feel. They're, they're more prone to, to live isolated from their mind and their heart. All because at an early age they did not have just the, 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 you know, the, the parent or grandparents just you know, holding them, just hugging them, uh, kissing their forehead, loving on them. Because of that, the, that carries into their adulthood. Now they, they literally live disconnected heart and mind. They feel things, but they, they, don't, they can't tell about what they feel. And it goes back to they didn't have effective touch. Also, some of the studies are also showing that these type of people, and this being adults, now, if they don't have effective touch in this way, this also leads into eating disorders. Into eating disorders, coping with what they're, what, what they're lacking and also into depression, and then eventually into forms of self-harm. And the reason why physical touch is so important, and the reason why we look at it in, through the lens of this, this poor woman for 12 years agonizing with this, is because the human body is made to, to once we receive a physical touch from someone, your, your body responds by naturally producing a hormone called oxytocin. And just by that, that affectionate touch, when you feel that, it just makes you feel loved and it makes you feel affection. And if somebody doesn't have that for a long amount of time, it literally creates all sorts of sad disorders in someone's life. And think now, she was untouchable, essentially for 12 years. This, this deep human need just to be touched Lacking oxytocin, which is why it leads to depression, which is why it leads to abuse of substances, which is why it leads into eating disorders, which is why it leads into self-harm and despair. I love how she came up behind Jesus. That Jesus is, is headed this way. It says this in verse 28. It's like Jesus is headed this way, large crowd around him, and now... She comes up behind and touches his robe. And what does it say at the beginning of verse 29? How did all that happen? Immediately. Immediately. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. The immediately she had gone from this feeling of hopelessness, helplessness, and now... She got her life back. A life that she hadn't had for 12 years, and now she gets her life back. Let's go back to our passage, verse 30. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around us, his disciples answered. And yet you, you can ask, Who touched me? I think this is great. It's like, of course Jesus knows exactly who touched him. And yet the disciples are there like, Jesus, why did you even ask who touched you? Everybody's touching you. You're in a crowd. This is like a germaphobe's nightmare. Like I, I, I'm like, I'm not even a germaphobe, but if I was on the outside looking in, I would think, man, I don't even know because if I go there, they're all going to be touching me. This is going to get weird in a hurry. And some of you are germaphobes and you feel what I feel right now. And yet now his, his disciples say, well, Jesus, you know, what's up? Like, everybody's touching you. They don't understand, but Jesus does. And now we're going to see how he responds. And he responds in a way that is so deeply personal that he doesn't just look, her as some, look at her as just some woman. 
that he found on the way to doing ministry. Look at the way he responds. Let's continue on. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. She told him the whole truth. I don't even know what the whole truth is. Maybe she went and told him her story. I've been struggling with with this, this hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years. I've been in this desperate situation. Nobody can be around me. I can't worship anymore like I used to. My whole life changed. I've, I feel like I lost. I don't even know what the whole truth is. But, but for some reason, she just spills it to Jesus. She's like, I, the whole truth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know some part. It's either all of her story or some part of her story. The whole truth. Notice how he responds. Verse 34. He said to her, daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Such a caring word. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And I have goosebumps right now just thinking about this. But to have this this ailment for 12 years, and now she went from being untouchable but yet she risked her own life just to touch the robe of Jesus, and now she was healed. And the word says in verse 29 that she was healed immediately, that the change happened. And not only did the change happen, she knew it in her own spirit. She recognized that she was healed, that the issue of bleeding was done, and she was getting her life back. And then Jesus doesn't just treat her like some some person on the way to doing ministry. Instead, he says to her, daughter such a i don't even know why he would choose this word other than the fact that it's a very endearing word maybe he's he's now recognizing perhaps i don't know this maybe he's now recognizing that she's actually a child of god i'm not sure but he he just speaks to her and he says daughter and in that that recognition he wasn't just treating her as some woman on the way to doing what else was more important. Instead, he treated her like a person. And Jesus deals with us individually. Jesus deals with us in a way that he wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to walk in faith with him. He doesn't want us to have these sporadic spiritual experiences with us. He wants to instead lead us and shepherd us and guide us. It's what Jesus wants for us. And I love how Jesus doesn't just leave her anonymous by saying daughter. He was saying you may be unknown to these people, but I know you. You may feel like you're unloved by everybody else, but I love you. You may feel like there was no other hope, but I just gave you hope. You may have been hemorrhaging blood and hemorrhaging hope, but now you're getting it all back. Verse 30 says this. It says that once Jesus realized the power had gone from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me, but Jesus kept looking to see 
who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to him, came and fell at his feet and, he tr- and trembled with fear. She trembled with fear. So even in this, you see how she feels when she's embracing Jesus. And just being there, there's, there's this fear that she has to conquer and probably a, a lot of awe and respect for God too that, that she's there that isn't just like this, this little minor thing that's happening. She's overcoming these obstacles step by step by step by step until she gets up to touch the cloak of Jesus. And then Jesus again responds with, Daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And it's being freed from her financial suffering and her social suffering and her spiritual suffering and her physical suffering. Be free from these things. Verse 35 says this. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came to the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Now, now, Jesus, uh, again, now the, the, the woman who had the, issue, who had the issue of hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, that has happened. But remember, at the same time, he was about to go to Jairus' house. So now he's back on track. He's, he's, he's given this miracle and he's connected with this, this woman who was hemorrhaging blood and hope. And he's given that to her by incredible miracle. And now he's going back uh, to, uh, to do what he had originally set out to do. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. They said to him, why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. In other words, don't be afraid, just have faith. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But look what happens next. This is, you're going to see why in just a moment. It seems very out of place. The next verse says, but they laughed at him. But they laughed at him. After he'd put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in there. Uh, he went in where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately the girl stood up and walked around, and she was 12 years old. Remember, the, the woman with the issue of bleeding had struggled with that condition for how long? 12 years. So now, this, this little 12-year-old girl is just becoming a woman, and this is the stage of life. She's just becoming a woman, and now she has died. At this, they were completely astonished. Um, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. I don't know if you realize this or not, but dead people don't eat. So this was a confirmation to father and mother. She is alive. Now, let me give you an interesting thing, and it really helps you to understand this passage, because if you looked at this in our context, this would be not something that we would experience. If somebody has lost a loved one, you would never experience that there would just be laughing, and you never, you would never um, want to experience, or perhaps you would never have somebody um, just to think that, but they laughed at him. They laughed at what Jesus had said. In their culture, they would have these, these people who were professional mourners. 
They're professionals, largely women. And they would, I believe, play a flute. Uh, there'd be two flute players and one wailing woman. And this was a requirement in their culture for poor people or rich people. It didn't matter. And I don't know if this was a way of, of coping, helping the, the family to cope with that loss. So maybe they're just allowing for everyone to have someone there with them to comfort them in the time of their loss. I'm not really sure. But then these professional mourners, they had been around this before. They had seen dead people. This is what they did. This is their job. And they're in there, and they're, they're the, the professionals. So now they're, they're in this space over Jairus' daughter who had died. And now when Jesus had said, at, at verse 39, at the end of it, he says, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. This would give an explanation as to why they laughed. Like, seriously? We've been here many, many times. Who are you? Well, Jesus Christ is God. That's who they're face to face with. So that would give an explanation as to the professional mourners as to why they laughed because in our culture that just would not even make sense. But in theirs, if you had an unbeliever in the room whose job was to simply to, to give some sort of mourning care, it would not be too far-fetched to think that they would laugh if somebody came in and said, no, she's just asleep, she's not dead. So I'm going to wrap up these, these two things, two different situations where people were brought back to life. Jairus' daughter, literally, dead, brought back to life. You see the woman with the issue of blood. She was, was in all purposes, dead to her community, dead in her, her walk with God, couldn't attend the synagogue, socially dead to other people, and now she got her whole life back after this healing happened. And, and I, what I want to just summarize it by saying is this. Jesus was not content just to dispatch a miracle. He wanted to encounter a person. And this is what he is still up to today. In both situations, Jesus could have just, with the woman with the issue of bleeding, he could have dispatched the miracle and never turned around and looked for this woman. He could have just allowed that miracle to happen and she could have just walked on and just known all of that and Jesus could have kept doing ministry and going right to Jairus' house. But he didn't. Because he didn't want to just dispatch a miracle. Instead, he wanted to build a rapport. He wanted to encounter a person. He wanted to have a relationship. He wanted to get face to face. The same thing with, with Jairus. When Jairus came up the first time, he was talking about his daughter. Jesus could have said, I'll go back home. She's fine. And Jesus could do that. And he's actually been known to do this. Where it's like, no, by the time you get back there, she's going to be fine. But instead, in this situation, Jesus didn't want to just dispatch a miracle. He wanted to encounter a person. This is still what Jesus is up to today. He doesn't just want to do our bidding. When we pray, it isn't just to do our bidding. Instead, what he wants is to encounter a person. He wants to shape your story. Imagine the story that, that the woman, the, excuse me, the woman with the issue of bleeding, imagine the story she had to tell about Jesus as now she's free and healed. Think about that story. Think about how it would be so solidified in her mind and her heart what Jesus had done. Think about how she most likely lived the rest of her life and what she led in every conversation was, you will never guess what Jesus did for me. You will never guess what Jesus did for me. He did this for me, and I don't know what you're struggling with, but I believe Jesus can do this for you. Imagine 
the story that is to tell. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, uh, we should see these things as well. And in the kingdom of God, know that miracle leads to mending and also miracle leads uh, excuse me, miracle leads to meeting and miracle leads to mending. So again, it's, it's connecting. It's a personal journey with God. So when God dispatches a miracle, it, it is to deepen your faith and to deepen the faith of other people. That's the reason why the signs and wonders were there in the first century, not to make the people look good, but to make the power of God look like what it was. It wasn't so, so that the Christians could be those wild, crazy, spiritual people. It's to make Jesus, uh, to bring Jesus to a place where he is truly glorified. That was the purpose of all these miracles. So what is it that we should do? And I'll, I'll finish with this verse from Psalm 107, verse 2. What is it that we should do? I believe what we should do is when we... When we experience, experience the power of God in our life, whether we would consider a miracle or not, but when we experience the power of God in our life, we should let the redeemed of the people say so. We, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. When God does a work in your life, we should be able to tell people our story. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert or you're an extrovert. That only becomes an obstacle for your disobedience. I'm going to say it again. When you are unwilling to share your testimony and your story, and you say, well, I'm just not, a, I'm not an extrovert, I'm an introvert, that is only an excuse for your disobedience. That's all that is. There was no qualifier when it came to the Great Commission. It was therefore go, meaning all Christians. So for us, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When God has done work in our life, let us be able to share our faith story with somebody else. When God has brought us from the place of despair and he's brought us out of the pit, let us then look for other people who are in the pit to encourage them to trust in Jesus like you did. Let us then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let us declare the promises of God and the purposes of God, the fact that we're part of a family. It's an imperfect family, but it is a family no less. As we trust in Jesus to do the miraculous. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would inspire all these people to have more faith moment by moment, day by day. Father, I pray that you would allow them to have a victory uh, maybe a victory in their life, there's something they're struggling with. Maybe it's a, a relational conflict. Maybe it's a physical ailment. I don't know what it is, God, but whatever it is, I pray that you would allow them to have victory. God, I pray that, that you would uh, be their help and just send the Holy Spirit to break down any barriers of unbelief, any, any barriers and obstacles in their life that, that are leading them to disobedience. But God, to truly allow them to, to do what it said in the Psalms, to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let us declare the glory and the goodness of God for everyone that would hear. God, empower us to do what it is that your word said and encourage us to do it as well. Amen. Amen.